0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Danny Coffey. In this episode, we'll be discussing European Union militarism, what it means for Ireland, Europe, and indeed the world. Our guest is a coordinator of the Transnational Institute's War and Pacification Program, which focuses on the permanent state of war and the pacification of resistance. Niamh Lievrin, you're very welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank uh, you much for
0: having me. Now, I suppose with European militarism, We can all trace this back to the Lisbon Treaty. That's where the idea of battle groups and all of that kind of came into being. But how much closer are we to having a kind of a cohesive military at this stage in 2022?
1: So at the moment, we actually have European Union military mandated operations on the ground in places like West Africa, uh, the Horn of Africa, and we're in the process of uh, building a 10,000 standing core for the European Union's uh, Coast Guard agency, which is known as Frontex. So you mentioned there the the Lisbon Treaty, um, which is, uh, yeah, once the Lisbon Treaty came into force, it basically gave the legal underpinning for the uh, common policy on security and defense. Um, and once that common policy was then in place with the legal structures around it that were required with the Le- Lisbon Treaty, from there, there's really been a process which has, has been towards a more consolidated militarization of European Union institutions and not just within Europe, but really rolling out European Union mandated military operations far beyond Europe's borders. So. Uh, and, th- and that process will only move forward in, in the following years, as um, as we've seen with the strategic compass, which is another European Union instrument, which was just approved. Um, and so we're very much on the road towards, and, and yeah, we're, we're very much on the road towards really a consolidated military, militarized uh, union.
0: And you mentioned the strategic compass there. What does that encompass? Could you explain the European Strategic Compass?
1: So the European Strategic Compass is another uh, one of these. uh, It's a buzzword for, you know, the idea of a compass is that when you're lost, you will use a compass to navigate. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: And so the Strategic Compass for Security and Defense that the European Union has. There was an initial version of this compass presented in, I think it was November 2021. Um, And the idea was, again, to use the compass to align um, European defence security policy. Uh, But then it was readjusted in February and in March um, in response, as opposed to the Ukraine war. And then we see that by the end of March, um, the European Council adopted the final text of the strategic compass. Um, And again, it goes towards building a really consolidated military effort you know with a i think it's a, sta- a standing core of i think it's at 5000 troops i would have to double check the figures um but it's got four pillars in it basically the idea is that there will be a, st- a standing core of of military personnel that can that can act if necessary but there's a huge component of it which is around investment yeah. um, and of course what we see and what kind of the running thread is with all of these european military funds is that they're basically using public money to prop up private companies. And when I say private companies, I'm specifically referring to private arms companies. And what we've seen is is that the arms companies are actually involved in lobbying the people in the corridors of power for these changes. And then once they actually come into effect, they're the ones that then reap the benefits from them. So you have a huge conflict of interest in terms of who's influencing policy, who's shaping policy, how the policy then is rolled out, and then once the funding is in place, who actually benefits from the policy. So I'm just checking back. The four pillars, they're act, secure, invest, and partner. It's really, the language that you see in all of these things is very interesting because the language is always framed around uh, fighting for freedom and democracy, um, human rights, uh, rule of law and all of this. But if you look at how these proposals and how these funds and how these instruments actually come into place, many of them actually circumvent, uh, In, for example, the European Peace Facility, which is another yeah. one of these uh, European instruments built, again, around the idea of militarization of European Union institutions. The peace facility is an off-budget facility, which doesn't... Um, go through the parliament for its budgetary oversight. Okay. Um, so it's basically, it's the first European fund which will fund weapons to a war zone, and we've seen that in the case of Ukraine. But very controversially, it's an off-book budget. There's no democratic oversight how how this uh, on how this will be spent. And similarly with the European Defence Fund, which is the first European pool of money, again, public money that will go to private companies, to the tune of 8 billion euros um, for the funding of research and development of very controversial lethal weapons, um, military equipment. Again, there's very little transparency around how the actors that are applying for for funding produce weapons, so to, to research and develop weapons. Very little transparency at all that there's any compliance with even basic ethical standards around having access to such massive pools of public money. And yeah, this is this is hugely contra- controversial. It's hugely problematic. And if you're just to think, I mean, 8 billion euros that goes to defense spending is 8 billion euros. It's not going to healthcare, to education, to social issues.
0: Now, when you and say so anything, weapons, what type of weapons are, are we looking at here? What, what are we talking about with, with regard to weapons, um, specific so, types of weapons?
1: So in terms of what is being sent with the European Peace Facility so the weapons so to get into the kind of weapons that are being sent to Ukraine um as an example of how the European f- Peace Facility is being used first of all the idea was that it would be used for what's called defensive weapons so it would be weapons uh, like anti missile uh, launchers these kinds of things yeah. um but now as as the war is going on, uh, it's becoming more and more elongated. And that is also to do, I think, with the fact that so many weapons are being supplied because sending weapons into a war zone has never actually reduced the levels of violence. But now as the war is going on, there's more and more calls to send in much more aggressive weaponry. So just to, to send in uh Missile launchers and, and, yeah, much more aggressive weaponry in that sense. Longer-ranged
0: um, missiles. Long, yeah,
1: Miss, exactly. Um, and then just in terms of the kind of weapons that are being investigated and researched and developed, Yeah. the transparency around that is very unclear. But what we've been able to see is that a lot of, of the projects that we were able to research at least... 6 of 32 will be relying on some form of artificial intelligence um and so we're really looking at stuff like sensors on weapons using very kind of smart you know smart weapons where we really don't even know the functionality and you know it's a slipping slippery slope towards right. eventually having armed drones is that's the road that we're going down because Um, It's interesting to note that the European Union's Act on Artificial Intelligence, which is still a proposal, it hasn't been approved, exempts military equipment from it. So anything that's developed with artificial intelligence that has a military function is actually exempt from the Act that is to regulate the use of artificial intelligence. So, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a difficult question to answer in the sense that the weapons are so advanced in terms of smart technologies. Um, And when we submitted requests to find out what it was being funded, we got back lots of documentation that was redacted. So it was uh, difficult to read. But in terms of what's being sent to Ukraine right now, it started off first as uh, weapons that would be considered to be defensive or low-level military equipment. And now things are, uh, yeah, now they're moving towards really sending in much more long ra- longer range weapons that would have a much higher capacity to have much more destructive impact in the war.
0: With the European Peace Facility as well, the act that was in before that, I think it was the African Peace Facility, but it, it had to go through the African Union to send. But now with the peace facility, the European Peace Facility, they can give weapons to individual. Is, is that right? I, I read that or did I have I got that wrong? But they can give them to individual states or people that represent uh, European values, so to speak.
1: Yes. So, the I mean, the peace facility really, it, 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 I mean, they can provide weapons and equipment to any to any country, really, to, I think, as they said it, yeah, like you said, that if they're aligned with European values, who, who say what European values are? In, a, in a, yeah. you know, it, when when we're the ones that are often waging the wars, you know, and sending in the weapons and and propping up the dictatorships and the authoritarian regimes. But yeah, so the way, the peace facility, the the way they have defined it as that it's about preserving peace, preventing conflict, and strengthening international security. So this is very friendly sounding, but in, the, in in real terms, what it actually translates to is financing military operations that can be carried out by the European Union or the European Union allies um, by providing equipment, training, uh, assistance. So it's really a, a distortion of the word peace. And yeah, weapons can be sent in and are being sent in, yeah, with, you know, with the European Public money, and and I think you know, I think many many people across Europe have no idea that Europe is so far advanced in yeah, in military operations in the name of the European
0: Union. Now, with the embargoes on, on Russian goods, there's minerals and all of that that we would import here, but we're not importing them now because of sanctions with the European peace facility, could that be used as a, you know, I, I don't know, it's just conspiracy theorist, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but could it be used like to finance certain governments or certain um, groupings that, for European interests, so the Europeans could move into those markets and exploit the natural resources? I mean, Russia is in the Central African Republic at the moment. Irish troops are in Mali, are, I think they're coming out of there now, but to further european interests you know as th- those markets from from russia are closed there be a scramble a new scramble for africa would that be off the wall or is it
1: um i mean i think that that is, that is happening already um i think that i mean it's not unreasonable to think that a lot of the violence that is going on in west africa for example i don't think it's unreasonable to think that that is linked to the level of, you know, the richness of the resources, uh, the natural resources, the minerals. You know, we we know that resource wars exist, and I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that, yeah, the deals may be done and have been done by the European Union and member states to, yeah, to get access to land that is. I mean, it's 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 colonialism by a different name, perhaps. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, I mean, the European Union mission in, Sah- in the Sahel, I, if I'm not mistaken, it started in 2012. And, and since then, the situation there has got gone from bad to worse, arguably. Um, there's been, I think, two coups or three coups in Mali in the last number of years. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's, you know, we've seen this also in, you know, with access for companies accessing mines Um, The Congo, for example, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, is so rich in minerals and has been, it's a a country that has been in a permanent state of conflict um, for decades. Um, And I don't think that that's a coincidence, you know.
0: Yeah, I'll just bring it back to the European Defence Fund. Uh, Like, uh, there was two other funds before that. You had the Preparatory Action for Defence and for. For action, preparatory action for defense research, which was f- the funding was 90 million. Uh, then mm-hmm. the European Defence Industrial Development Program from 2019 mm-hmm. to 2020, 500 million Now the European Defence Fund, over 8 billion, whatever it is. I mean, is that uh, is that gearing up for war, basically, as we kind of come to this mi- multipolar polar world? Uh, the, that's yeah.
1: So, I mean, I think that if you, I, like I said, you know, if you were to put that eight billion into building peace, can you imagine the the world we would be living in? You know, so I think, I mean, the first, yeah, the precursor programs, um, the ninety billion w- or the ninety million was was uh, set aside for research, and the five hundred million was set aside for the development of weapons, but also in conjunction with that. And going forward now with the European Defence Fund, what you see within the European Commission is also an impetus to relax exportation um, regulations. So you have uh, yeah, export restrictions where you're not supposed to export to certain countries in conflict. Again, the, there is really no political will to stop arms exports to, to countries at war um or experiencing armed conflict so you have a situation where Europe is really driving um the development the research and development of new forms of weaponry and yeah. like i mentioned earlier using smart technologies um and then at the same time relaxing exportation regulations which will permit a massive uh, escalation in the, the this level of funding um, and also just to mention that this funding from the European Union is to be understood, I think, as co-financing because a lot of the European Union member states, so for example, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, they will already have a very active, um, arms trade in and of themselves. So this funding is going to prop up their arms trade also. So it's, it's, I mean, it's to militarize by any and all means possible.
0: The, the funding goes to the four major uh, military suppliers of, of weapons. Uh, I think it's Germany, France, uh, Spain, and and the bulk of that funding goes to. Does any of it come to Ireland? The
1: Irish role is it's of course it's not at all on a par with the with with the funding that's going to the the big four so Spain, France, Germany, and Italy. But Ireland does have one company. Um, I can't remember the name. I would have to, to check it. But Ireland is in risk. There is one company that's definitely involved. And Ireland has been showing increasing interest in becoming part of the at least the research um, aspect of this. Yeah. Um, and the way it's seen as it's part of a drive for innovative industry, enterprise development, and so it's it's really being rolled out as a business opportunity and uh, something that's positive for the Irish economy without joining any of the dots between Ireland's role in potentially uh, funding a uh, research and development of very controversial and le- you know lethal weapons. The only kind of logic that's being taken from this is that it's a positive thing for the Irish economy without ever really joining the dots between what would down the road end up being weapons that are going to be sent to war zones, you know?
0: Yeah, um, I've seen but them. But yeah,
1: Ireland has, has shown interest in, in being able to access this funding. Um, And even last year, there was a, a virtual event held. Um, I think it was the Minister for Defence. Um, Simon and, and Yeah, I think it was Simon Coveney who oversaw it, but I would have to double-check that. And basically, that the intentions are to, to, yeah, to embark on kind of a more aggressive form of getting access to this funding. But it's, it's, it is, um, yeah, they haven't been so forthcoming. I think with providing information about how Ireland is, is engaging with this.
0: Yeah, I actually seen on YouTube when I was researching for this interview. Uh, there's a YouTube how SMEs uh small and medium business enterprises will um benefit from the European defense fund which i found absolutely that there's something that they're able to do i was the um i just spotted that on youtube it just with all of this going on like you have weapons going out to african countries and you now have because of the ukraine uh war you now have a a food crisis so you're going to have people from uh, West Africa and, uh, and across of poorer countries looking for asylum here. You mentioned Vortex at the beginning of the interview. Can you just give us a rundown on what Vortex is and uh, how it works and how it's funded and what it does, basically? Yeah.
1: So Frontex was set up or Frontex, as... sorry. No, of course. <laughs> That's the thing. Very few people know what what Frontex actually is and it's such a it's such an important part of the jigsaw puzzle in understanding how the European Union is being militarized to what extent so Frontex was set up as the European Union's border and coast guard agency i think it was i think it was back in 2006 if i'm not mistaken and it had a very small budget and the yeah the idea I suppose was that it was or no was it 2004 I think it was 2004 and the idea was that it was it was a very small entity and then it started to grow into what is now one of the European Union's most highly funded entities. It is one of the most controversial ones because yeah like very few few people know what it's doing but most, it's it's very controversial in that it's set up as a border and coast guard agency but it now has an expansion of its mandate whereby it can uh, act autonomously so without the approval of nation state directly from from central from from brussels and like i said it will have a, a budget to roll out a standing corps of 10,000 troops um, and it will be able to um place itself in countries that don't necessarily border the European Union. So there's a project at the moment to have it rolled out in Niger, for example, in West Africa.
0: Right.
1: Um, but- and so the the ideas the idea is that Frontex started off as something very small and now it's one of the most heavily funded uh, institutes within within the European Union and very few people know anything about it actually. Um, and one of the most controversial things is that Frontex is taking a leading role in what has become known as pushbacks or illegal deportations. Um, and so often Frontex will be present in, for example, in, on the Greek-Turkish border, if uh, rafts are floating over to Greece from Turkey with you know, people seeking a, who wish to seek asylum on board, they will be dragged back to, to Turkish waters, yeah. basically kicked out of the European Union. And you see Frontex being involved. And Frontex has been brought before the Parliamentary Scrutiny Committee, which took place last year in, in Brussels. Frontex has been scrutinized before the European Parliament. It has been found to have been very problematic in terms of transparency, accountability, human rights violations. The head of Frontex, who was... Um, an Italian called Leggeri, he was removed from his position. But the in, the the entity has not changed. And, you know, we need to abolish Frontex, but we also need to abolish all of the militarized thinking around border policies that, that kind of underpin the fact that Frontex can in, exist in the first place. But I think the, the vast majority of people have no idea what, what Frontex is. Um, and it's just another example of kind of, what goes on in Brussels kind of goes over everyone's heads and i think that the people in power know that and are and are use you know they use these uh they kind of use that opaque situation to to expand these really problematic european union institutions without any uh transparency
0: i just you said that they were in niger I, I mean how do, does it how are they allowed to do that? How are they allowed to just be outside of the European Union and another state?
1: So they well, you'd be surprised how how many European uh, um, how many European entities are outside the European Union. But in the case of Frontex, they opened up. What they call a risk analysis cell in Niger in uh, I think it was in 2018, right? Um, and the European Union has been externalising border control for many years. It started most aggressively in 2015, but it was yeah it was already in the in the process I think since before then. But basically, it's when you're the European Union makes agreements with third countries. Um, uh, that's kind of a carrot and stick approach so it's basically the European Union will make for example a bilateral agreement with in the case of Morocco they may make an agreement with uh, Spain will have done this the European Union also yeah. um, where are the same with the Libya with Libya the European Union has made an agreement with the, with the authorities uh, in Libya uh, with the Coast Guard where the European Union provides them with military assistance training, Boats, and then they're used to pull people back from from right. ever reaching Europe's shores. And what what we see in Eastern Europe, for example, is the countries that are in the candidacy list to become European Union member states. When you become a a, a candidate to join the European Union, there's a session agreement, and within those, there's often leniency, for example, around giving visas to people who come from countries in the Balkans in response to those countries controlling the flow of migrants that are coming through their countries on the way to, to Europe. So um, the European Union has agreements with countries.
0: Turkey, I think really, is one of them. Uh,
1: Tur- well, Turkey is one of the most problematic. Turkey it, yeah, It does have a border with 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 the European Union. But again, it's it's this idea that they can negotiate. I mean, even if you remember last year when the Taliban came back into control in Afghanistan and one of the first statements that came from the European Union, from Josep Borrell, who's a high commissioner who's overseeing a lot of the security defense side of things. And he's, well, one of his first statements was, well, now we'll have to negotiate with the Taliban to, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but to yeah. to divert, uh, yeah, to divert kind of a, a an influx of people who will be now fleeing Afghanistan from a group that we have considered to be a terrorist group for the last 20 years. Now they're in control. Now we will negotiate with them to make sure that people who were fleeing this group that we have considered until now, terrorist group yeah. don't make their way to Europe. Right. Um, so you see the European union ready to make deals with whoever they need to. I mean, also you had in in Sudan, a situation where the European union uh, was, was uh, and member states were funding for years, were funding um, Al-Bashir's dictatorial regime, you know, and, yeah. um, so it's it's really I mean it's 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 Europe again. It's the colonialist power dynamics, you know, European Union member states and the European Union itself calling the shots um, and dictating how how con- and when you see countries standing up to them, then they're you don't really even see it. But if you you know it's kind of there isn't even space for that, and that's again back to the power dynamics um, that are at play.
0: So. yeah this is this is all so funded by uh, European uh, taxpayers basically we're funding uh, the arms industry that creates the refugees that then we fund the border force that keeps them out and th- that's never really that that's not the narratives that uh, that that's put a, put across in the media but finally we had the um NATO summit there in the last uh couple of days back there. Um, Basically, are we definitely going towards a multipolar world now? You had uh, the Australian-Japanese government's uh, representation at it. China was on the agenda. Then you have the Nordic countries, um, Sweden and Finland have now joined NATO. Are we going down that uh, that road towards uh, that bipolar world where basically... Mm. War, basically. That's.
1: I think. I mean, I. Th- I think it's. I don't know if you remember after the the nine eleven attacks in in two thousand and one, and there was yeah. a famous speech from George Bush where you're either with us or against us. Um, and I think that what, the, and I think from then on, there's really been this kind of move towards. We've become more and more and more polarized, um, and I think that this is. What we're seeing is an entrenchment of that mentality that you cannot be neutral, that in a neutral stance is understood to be a passive one um, and almost obstructing kind of getting on with this idea of building peace through militarization um, instead of understanding that neutrality is actually the cornerstone of a peaceful society. And anything beyond that, we've seen that you know as we've become more and more polarized, we've actually... Moved ourselves closer to war, and now we have a war in Europe. Um, you know, we've been building up militarily for years, uh, expanding NATO, investing massive, unpre- unprecedented amounts of money in militarism, in building up the arms trade. Constantly talk- talking about a threat, but really the threat is actually the the instability is being created by this pre- preparation for war. You know, so I, I, I think that it's, in that sense, I think, you know, Ireland hopefully will continue to, to maintain a militarily neutral stance because, I mean, if you look at the example of of Finland and, and Sweden, they've been neutral for decades and yeah. they have never had an encounter or a, a confrontation, you know, with with Russia, even though the, the border with Finland is, it's, I think, is it nearly 2,000 kilometers? Yeah, I can't remember how quite long it extensive. is, but... I mean, and they've never had, and now they, and even though now, you know, now more than ever, they need to, to maintain their neutral stance because it's, you know, President Putin has been very clear that one of his uh, issues with going into Ukraine was related to the fact that it was becoming more and more militarily aligned with uh, with right. NATO, with the US being funded, you know, military equipment, military training. Uh, military exercises that were carried out all last summer um, in Ukraine and in in the sea around Ukraine, that that has been one of the driving factors with the war. And yet we see that Finland and Sweden have decided to (laughs) embark. I mean, it seems almost ludicrous that this policy of remaining neutral has has meant that, you know, they haven't had a confrontation with Russia in decades, uh, centuries, you know. Um, in the case of Sweden, Finland, of course, more recently yeah. with, with World War Two, but now that there's a real threat on their doorstep, the they've completely shifted focus, and it's very scary. It's it's very scary. And also in in, in Sweden and Finland, there was no uh, chance for the public to weigh in. The, the you know there was yeah. no referendum. It was
0: voted truth by the parliament, but. I think five percent were were against it. Was it? It was ninety five five or something like that. Was I'm that?
1: not sure exactly the numbers, but the the people didn't have like there no, was there no there was no plebiscite. There was no referendum on joining. Um, so the it's at a time when we need more voices for than ever before to you know advocate diplomacy as opposed to ratcheting up the war rhetoric. At a time when we really need kind of Solid voices that can bring, the, and that can even just speak about peace. You know, nobody's talking about peace. Everyone is talking about military victory and winning the war. Nobody's talking about stopping the war and having military, uh, a military ceasefire and a negotiated peace resolution. You know, when has it ever worked to send arms into a conflict? Has you know, has that ever been? Well, Ever brought a solution, and also nobody's asking what will happen to all of this weaponry once the fighting eventually stops. All wars come to an end at some point, yeah. but weaponry can go on and be reused and resold and and remanufactured or re you know adjusted to be sold and used for years and years and years for decades, and we have no we've no handle on on how this weaponry will then enter the black market be sold on again. Yes. Yeah, absolute madness. But this is the, the. But the way I'm speaking is actually I consider to be the, the the yeah the voice that doesn't have reason. But I mean, the voice of reason these days is is to be is send in more arms. That's the way that the mainstream narrative is. You know. Well, so.
0: I I seen. Claire Daly, Mick Wallace or anybody that spoke out was castigated and harassed into. But I, I, I can see now that people are, the, the sanctions um, and and people are looking at it a lot more ob- objectively now I suppose. But the good th- news for us though in Ireland is that the majority of people are still against any type of military. They want to keep the neutrality. But um, Finally, just you, I was just on the NATO summit. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, just to just to finally wrap up. What what what's your analysis of what you've seen on the on what day was it Wednesday or or Thursday last week?
1: I mean, I think I I think it's it's a lot of political and posturing, military posturing. It's very kind of trying to show strength and being very provocative um, you know like mentioning the you know Finland and Sweden um, it it feels like there is a t- there's a willingness to kind of to continue provoking instead of you know there's a there's a, t- a lot of talk about to be will be a stronger alliance there's no absolutely no room for (laughs) self-reflection, you know, to kind of, there's no kind of toning anything down. There's no seeking peace Um, or, you know, there's a constant kind of uh, Russia is the enemy. There's no, um, there's no willingness to engage with the fact that NATO shouldn't exist as a, as an entity. You know, it was, it was first established to, as a kind of, counterpart or you know kind of the opposition to what was the the Soviet Warsaw Union. Pact and you know the Warsaw Pact was dissolved and NATO has continued to exist and expand and there's kind of no reigning in you know no reckoning with what the role of NATO is it's it's kind of and it's I mean I don't think there was any surprises from the NATO summit I think it's exactly what what we expected because it's along the same lines of of yeah, kind of the, the rhetoric that we've been hearing. And I think, yeah, it's very clear that it's the U.S. that calls the shot, as, shots. As much as the European Union, I think that it's an equal player. I think it's very clear that it's it's the U.S. that, does that is calling call, the shots. Call, call the shot.
0: Just finally, and this is finally, and just something that popped into my head people who control the european the capitalists that control the european unions have different wants and needs to the to the united states and there is a definite push now by macron to push mi- european militarism can you see that they kind of NATO pulling apart as as the different uh, definitely over the russian gas and and various because they do have different Wants and needs the 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 capitalist societies from both the United States. They're both um, competing against each other. Can you see that the Europe Europe will go on on its own eventually, or is is there that will that um, Macron's narrative or his his idea be be pushed ahead?
1: I can't see. In the, I th- I think I could see more likely that there would be more tensions within the European Union, um, yeah. particularly around maybe, for example, Hungary. Um, also coming into winter, if there's, you know, if there is a, a reduction in access to, to gas, that kind of thing, and it will definitely be pinching in different countries, you know, in, in, in different ways depending on where they're getting their energy from, I could definitely see a scenario where the European Union, within European Union member states, where the Union might not be so united. But I I mean, I don't know that Europe would pull away from the US in a NATO situation. I think they're... I think, that, yeah, Macron. Like we even saw what happened with the, you know, the deal between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. Yeah. Where they decided not to to play ball with the French, and the the French were kind of just left standing because at the end of the day, the bigger players were the U.S., the U.K., and 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 Australia. So, yeah, I think that the, I mean, even if you look at the military budget of the U.S., it's it's extor, it's it's astronomical compared to. You know, everybody else to, to you. exactly so i think that the us will even if there are different needs i think that the us will continue to call the shots um and i think i mean longer term this this seems like it may you know as things kind of begin to wind down a bit with russia even though that seems like quite a, quite far off yeah um I think that the groundwork is actually being set for what will eventually be a much, probably much bigger conflict in in Asia. Um, yeah. You know, with with, with China. Right so I think that, yeah, geopolitics mm. I think is beginning to shift now. But I I think I think eventually things will 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 shift much more and yeah, in a, in a different direction. And I think that the this is more like the groundwork being set and that eventually our eyes will be cast much more squarely on on, on, on Asia and China, specifically.
0: China. Niamh Debrin... Who,
1: who knows? Okay.
0: the <laughs> you know. bring coordinator at the War and Pacification Programme at the Transnational Institute. Many thanks.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that's it from us. Denise O'Toole in production, The Beats by DJ Greens. You can check him out. There's a link in the description. There's also a link to the piece of pacification work at the Transnational Institute. You can check out their work, check out me's work, and the programme itself. Until next time, Togo Boogie, Slonga Foil, Chuck